Welcome to A Brief Chat. This is episode 208 for October 8th, 2021. I'm Jason Crane. So glad you're here. The van saga continues. This week, I took it back to the garage to hopefully pay them all the money I had to get it fixed and inspected. And it ended up costing more than all the money I had, and it isn't quite finished yet. But it's all going to work out. It turned out there was a a seized brake caliper, which is what I thought in the front passenger side. And then for them to fix the electronic things that are wrong with it and the one door handle, they had to order some parts. And I now have an appointment on the 18th of October to get those things fixed, which is just three days before I plan to go back on the road again full time. So, you know, it's not a Jason Crane operation if we're not cutting it down to the wire. And in this case, we certainly are. On the day that you are hearing this, if you're listening to it on the day that it's released, I am finally getting the car registered. You have to make an appointment to do that, and you have to make them quite far out. So hopefully all that's going to work out. And within a couple more weeks, in fact, two weeks from today, as you're listening to this, I should be back on the road. Fingers crossed. Thanks so much to everybody who's become a member recently and to everybody who has donated money toward the repair costs. Uh, it's honestly, I have no idea what I would do if that hadn't happened. I would never have had the money and I'm not sure how I would have gotten it. So uh, thank you all so much. It's it's a huge help to me. If you want to become a member of this show, just go to patreon.com slash vanarchism. That's patreon.com slash vanarchism, which is the word anarchism with a V at the beginning. You could also make a one-time donation via PayPal or via Venmo, and the information on that is in the show notes of this episode. A quick note about this episode, there are two versions of it going out into the world. There's the public version, I guess, which is about a half an hour long. And there's the members version, which is two episodes worth of conversation. As Andrew and I got to the end of the episode that I was planning to record, there was still so much to talk about that I had us go ahead and do a second one. But in this episode, what I've decided to do is combine parts from both of those. So if you hear Andrew referring to things like last week, I'll try to get rid of that. But if I've missed any, that's because originally we were operating kind of, you know, under the fiction that we did one episode and then we immediately recorded a second one, but they were going to be aired a week apart. So just understand that's what's going on if that creeps in. And if you want to hear the full episode, and trust me, you do because there's tons of cool stuff, then just go to patreon.com slash and join up and you'll get access to that. Without further ado, let's talk union organizing wobbly style with my pal, Andrew Miller. Andrew Miller, welcome to A Brief Chat. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. We're going to talk about a subject that is uh, near and dear to both of our hearts and that we both have been involved in. And I'm excited because often I kind of enter these conversations having at least some idea of where it's going to go. But really, all I know is that we both have an affinity for and experience in this topic. And after that, it is absolutely all going to be new to me where your story is concerned. So I'm right here with the listeners because I have no idea what's about to happen next. But the thing we're going to talk about is labor union organizing, uh, something I did for my full-time job for many years uh, for with a bunch of 
big corporate unions. And then I've also been a member uh, for years of the IWW, which about 100 years ago was a major force in American labor and has recently been seeing an or I would say an organizing resurgence. I would describe it as at a uh, incredibly localized level, but in a way that seems pretty exciting to me. And I know almost nothing except that we're both involved in some fashion with the IWW about your own experience. So can we maybe start there? Tell me, tell me about you and the world of labor organizing. Yeah, absolutely. I've been a WAB for uh, 11 or 12 years now, and I have been a member of OCSEA, which is the Ohio Civil Servant Employee Association, is a business union that represents workers at the state of Ohio. Um, So I've been a member of that for 17 years. And the IWW is, well, the Industrial Workers of the World. And being a member of the IWW is where I really uh, find myself fitting in, in in regards to organizing and doing work as... um, an external organizer, or some people call them organizing mentors. Um, so I have a you know a day job with the state of Ohio, and I'm involved in leadership with OCSEA um, because that impacts my personal employment. But uh, when it comes to organizing, and right now I'm in the midst of two different organizing efforts, one for approximately 600 employees, the other one for about 60 employees. Both of those I'm doing under the guise of the IWW, uh, which is um, solidarity unionism as opposed to business unionism. I'm just going to define one term that came up during that, and then we're going to immediately go on to define the two last terms that came up during that. But um, you referred to yourself as a WOB, and IWW, uh, back in the day, they were called the Wobblies, and uh, we in that union still refer to ourselves as that. It sounds like it could be a pejorative, but it's not. It's the term that <laughs> we use to talk about ourselves and other members of our union. So just wanted to uh, to let people know about that. I, I don't want this to be a history of the IWW. There are many of those, and in fact, I highly recommend the podcast Working Class History if you do want to hear history of the IWW. They've done some amazing stuff. But essentially, the IWW started, as I said, about 100 years ago. It was, as you just described, solidarity model unionism, and we'll talk about that in just a second. And it was very ground up, you know, worker run. And, you know, the idea was to kind of do this large large-scale organizing inside industries into one big union, as it was called, so that workers would all feel a sense of mutual solidarity. And that is not the way, eventually, that labor organizing went. And that's not by coincidence. It was it was made to not go that way. And I don't know yep. that we'll have time to cover that. But I do want to come back to the contrast you made between the kind of business model unionism and solidarity model unionism. And can you say to you, what's the what's the difference there? And obviously, we're in a limited format of, you know, how much we're going to go into, but can you give us kind of a thumbnail of, of how you see those differences? Yeah, absolutely. So the easiest way to talk about this for me is, um, in fact, related to one of the 
two organizing efforts I'm in right now. For most people, uh, particularly of the American audience or U.S. audience, we do a horrible job of educating people on what unions are or do. And I believe that that's also by design in our country. But uh, most people, when they think of a union, they think of something that falls under the AFL-CIO, something that would be a what I consider a business union, which is essentially where you have a structure of unionism that has, you know, paid staff to it and uh, fairly strong hierarchy. And in a lot of cases, how that comes about and how this relates to my current organizing, one of the organizing efforts that I'm involved in reached out to several different known type business unions like uh, teacher unions and uh, public service unions and uh, didn't get a response at all um, from those, which is terrible. But uh, the other one, which so not just a no, but, but literally just, ghosted by all of them. Yeah, right. And then uh, um, the other, the smaller of the two that I'm working, they did the same thing. They were trying to find a union because that's how we think of it in this country is I'm going to find a union and organize under that union. So they reached out and what they were told by one of the business unions that they encountered was great. We're glad to hear from you. We want to help you out. As soon as you are pretty confident that you have about 70% of your fellow workers organized, let us know and we will come and help you out. <laughs> and, and so for the, for the IWW, our whole thing is that if you're able to organize with your fellow workers, particularly if you can organize 70% of your workforce in solidarity why would you then turn that power over to anyone else? <laughs> and so the, the defining difference that really stands out the most that goes back to uh, something that you were kind of hinting at, uh, which is the um, early uh, Taft-Hartley years um, where that bill was passed and the, the bills that created the national Labor Review Board and the National Labor um, Act. The, these were things that essentially the government and business saw that unions like the IWW um, were attempting to fundamentally uh, assert the power of labor to change the way that our socioeconomic system is set up. They definitely didn't want that. And they also didn't like the fact that their factories and whatnot were being shut down by workers who, who saw this as a real way of liberating themselves. And so they enacted these bills under the guise of, of creating a fair playing field, which is obviously, you know, as long as you're dealing with, with one side that has 
the ability to make laws and the ability to spend unlimited amounts of cash, um, you can't have a, a level playing field. It's impossible. So tell me about the work that you're doing as a, a kind of a mentor organizer, despite the many, many organizing campaigns I've been involved in. It was always in a, you know, I was a paid staff member in a, a very direct and directive kind of way in these. Uh, I, I liked to think I was helping workers build power from the ground up, but that wasn't always as much the case as I would have liked. So I'm, I'm curious to hear how things are, are different with the, the campaigns that you're working on. Apologies to the listeners who are probably hoping at some point to know what this industry or business is that I'm helping to organize, but because we are not public with uh, the fact that we're trying to organize, uh, I won't be sharing that. However, I can say that a similar organizing effort that I'm aware of is going on under a business union with another one of these organizations. And in current organizing, the general thought of business union organizers is that you enter a workplace, um, you're, you're this paid staff member of the union who is a external organizer, which just means you don't work in that business. You work for the union and you help that the people in that business to organize the union. And for current business unions, the objective, generally speaking, has narrowed down to singularly being, I'm going to go in, I'm going to talk to this core group of people that reached out to us and gave us the lead that they're interested in organizing. And I am basically going to uh, show them how to sign people up for union cards. And the majority of what, what I want to do for this business union is to explicitly ask people to join this union sign a card, and as soon as we have what we think is a majority of the workers willing to sign cards, we rush into doing a union vote, which is a legally recognized thing by the National Labor Relations Board. With the IWW and the organizing that I'm doing, and it's not just me alone, uh, there's another external organizer that I'm working with. And what we do is very similarly, we got a lead from a few people that were interested in organizing, and we reached out to them, and we spend several weeks training them on how to have conversations with their fellow workers. We use, uh, IWW uh, uses the AEIOU method. There's lots of similar type methods out there. Um, basically, it stands for agitate, educate, inoculate, organize, unionize. But essentially, the, the point of learning how to do these sorts of, of conversations is to get fellow workers 
at the job site to connect with you and actually build a relationship with you. And But when I say you, I mean their fellow workers. I, as an external organizer, I try to make a connection with all of them as well. But at the end of the day, I'm not paid. I, you know, I do this because I believe in it. IWW, generally speaking, doesn't have paid staff. There's some some things going on in regard to that. But uh, generally speaking, the IWW firmly believes that it is on the workers to take care of themselves and that once you start setting up paid uh, bureaucrats within the union, then you start having these fights over, you know, is it up to the workers themselves or do they need to go through some union channel to make decisions and, and things like that. So where things really diverge then is that for a union under the IWW, you're really building up solidarity because at the end of the day, we, we see contracts as being a limiting factor in the daily lives of workers. There are IWW efforts that have ended up having contracts and essentially the the IWW didn't even allow for contracts until I believe it was 1938, um, around that time of, of Taft-Hartley and all of those labor law changes. There is still a very uh, strong sentiment that no IWW organizing effort should ever sign a no strike clause, whereas with business unions, no strike clause is pretty much guaranteed to be part of the union contract. For us, it's it's more about direct action. For example, uh, within the organizing that we're already doing with the larger of the two efforts, just a few weeks ago, there was an issue where where one of the locations was severely understaffed and another location was essentially overstaffed. I mean, they weren't. They were probably more appropriately staffed, but they weren't in the painful situation of the first location. And when the uh, folks at the the very understaffed location talked to management and said, Hey, can, you know, can you shift someone from another location to help us out for the day? Um, management basically threw up their arms and said, you know, we're going to have to have some conversations about this, blah, blah, blah. We don't, you know, we don't know um, if we can do anything about this. Sorry about your luck worker. Well, because of the organizing that we've been doing, and even though it's, you know, in the public's eye and in this organization's eye, there is no union because we haven't done a vote or anything like that. The workers at the understaffed location were able to reach out to the other location and say, hey, here's a situation we're in. And so some of the workers at the other location of their own volition, because of the solidarity that they share, uh, went 
to the understaffed location that day and helped out and and took care of it all the while management did nothing. It's so interesting to me, and we're we're kind of approaching the close here, but it's so interesting to me because this model that you're discussing, it's so at odds with you know the organizing models I've been involved with uh, professionally because those always have a very defined endpoint. You know, we're organizing either with card check, which just means that people sign those cards, but then you don't have to have an election. The boss just agrees that if you get 50% plus one on the cards, they'll recognize the union. Or you go to an election and you win or lose that election. You know, you try to do, you in the card check model, you either succeed or fail in getting a majority of people on the cards. Um, and those things have very, that's a very defined endpoint. And then you negotiate a contract, which this is a little known secret, but is often significantly more difficult than organizing the union in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's, you know, because of the armies of, of lawyers that are brought into play and, uh, you know, the, the time it can take, shops can go years in between voting in the union and actually getting a contract. But, or never getting contract. Or never getting one, absolutely. Um, but one of the things about that model, and by, by no means a fan of the business union model, even though I've benefited from it personally, one of the things about that model is in the world, like the, the eventual world of the IWW, where workers take power at such a scale that actually this system is overthrown— that's one thing, but that's not the world we actually live in right now, and it's not the world you and I will ever live in in our lifetimes, most likely, unless there's some enormous change I can't foresee, you know, that no right. one could foresee at this moment. So the world we live in right now is a world in which union power is largely exercised through contracts, and while I definitely understand the, you know, the solidarity idea, and we're going to exercise our power, you know, here on the shop floor. Like, for example, having a contract uh, when I was in a union is what allowed me to have health care and a pension and things like that. And so I'm curious about whether that's even built in into this IWW model or if that's just not, if it's just a total reframing of the goals. It is in so much as reminding yourself of the power structure and the power balance. So if I am management and I have, you know, 50 plus one, it was card check. So I went ahead and recognized the union. Now I'm going to negotiate a contract with the union. Why am I negotiating the contract with, with this union? It's, not because there was a a card check that now says a union exists. It's because I believe I'm under the impression in some way, shape or form that the number of workers who would be willing to walk out of my business, that would be willing to exercise their power banded together I believe that that that's a reason for me to sit down and and bargain with you. And and so, you know, when I uh, threw in that or never get a contract uh, for a lot of business unions, one of the the 
as you said, one of the hardest parts of that whole process is that initial contract because management is going to challenge the union as much as it can. And the whole point of dragging contracts out for a few years is that it slowly but surely erodes the worker base that may have initially been excited by the idea of, hey, I just signed a union card, we're going to get this contract. Well, now it's been two or three years, and there's not a contract, and why am I paying these dues, and so on and so forth. So with the IWW model, where it is all based on solidarity, it is all based on the workers maintaining power. So it in a way is more difficult from a standpoint that you have to continuously be involving your fellow workers and being in solidarity with them, truly caring about them because that means that you care about yourself as well. And and so whether you have a contract or not, if all the workers are in solidarity with one another and the boss is constantly afraid that those workers may take some action that, you know, that stops work or uh, cuts into profits or whatever the action might be, that's where the power is. The power is not in the contract itself. And every time that you go back to the contract table, if you aren't able to continue to show that your workforce is organized and willing to take action, then, you know, the contract slowly but surely will get less effective and less effective. Yeah, um, that's... So that's, you know, that's sort of the, the, the thing, um, that it seems like it's very different, but actually it's, it, it's quite similar. It, it's just recognizing that the power itself comes from that solidarity. Well, it's uh, fascinating uh, hearing about this organizing model, and I'm I'm so excited that it's that it's happening, and that people like you are are out there uh, helping our our fellow workers figure it out. I've been talking with Andrew Miller. Um, I remembered toward the end of this conversation that actually the there are other conversations about the IWW in the history of this very podcast. Uh, if you go back into the archives, uh, you can just go to briefjet.com and search Liss Waters Hyde from uh, the Freelance Journalist Union, which is part of the IWW, uh, was on the show toward the beginning of its life uh, when it was a very different kind of show. But she um, talks about uh, f- organizing among freelance workers in particular. And then again, and I will try to think to put links to this in the show notes, but if you can remember just to uh, Google Working Class History, it's a great podcast um, out of the UK, and they've done a, a lot of really impressive uh, audio history of the IWW in the US and Canada and uh, and elsewhere. Andrew, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks uh, for being here and for helping to shed some light on this exciting frontier of the American labor movement. Hey, thank you so much. And if any of your listeners want to join the IWW, check out IWW.org. Thank <laughs> you.